Hey, we've got a couple of announcements just to remind you. I won't be here on Thursday night, but I hope everybody is here on Thursday night because it's embarrassing when we have a guest speaker and not too many people show up. And our speaker is uh, Wayne House, and everybody knows Wayne uh, very well, so Wayne will be here uh, speaking uh, Thursday night, and I hope you pray for me. I'll be speaking now. I know the schedule at 11 o'clock on uh, Friday morning, 11 to 11.30, at the National Association of Christian Legislators at their annual meeting in Branson, Missouri. And I also know that there's a banquet on Friday night, and the speaker is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. So uh, there's a few other people. I've also, uh, Jason also told me that there are maybe, there's at least one, maybe two other people who are on our 2013 uh, trip to Israel that are going to be uh, be in attendance as well. So that should be, should be interesting. And then the next big event is... Uh, Sunday week, and that's July 3rd. We'll have our Independence Day barbecue dinner after church that Sunday. And so the congregation can bring sides and desserts and volunteers, especially for cleanup. And VBS then comes up in the week of July 19th to the 21st. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord and uh, confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are a God who attentively watches our lives. You are intimately involved with everything in our lives. And you are, through God the Holy Spirit, working in us to mature us and to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, it is through your word that you teach us and you equip us and you train us, you approve us, correct us, and instruct us in the way in which we should think, in the way in which we should live our lives. We pray that we might not be as rebellious as we want to be, but that we might conform to your will, submit ourselves to your authority, and that we can walk humbly with you. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we can gain greater insight into what that means to wisely walk with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're studying in Judges. I still don't, there we go. In Judges, and we're going to wrap it up tonight, our study about decision-making in the Scriptures. How do believers make decisions? We started off about three weeks ago because we're in that passage in Judges chapter 6 where Gideon, who has already been told, and it has been stated by God, by the angel of the Lord three times, that he is God's choice to lead the Israelites in battle against the Midianites and to deliver them from these invaders uh, after these uh, seven years of being under their their thumb. And so now that um, God has chosen him, Gideon is trying to get out of it. He he's not too sure. He's has and that's the thing. Gideon is is like most of us. We can't be too harsh on us. One day we're we're sold out. We're going to do whatever God wants us to do and then as soon as we find out what that really entails, we're not so sure anymore. We always have that struggle with the sin nature and it always amazes me as I study through the Old Testament that they did as well as they did. There's no baptism by the Holy Spirit. There's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's no filling with the Holy Spirit. There's uh, no relationship with the Holy Spirit in their Christian life as we know it. Uh, 
then and and that's what God's teaching in that dispensation that they they need divine enablement and then when we get divine enablement in the church age we still fail and we still don't do a whole lot better and that's what God's demonstrating is that it demonstrates the sinfulness of sin and the deep seated arrogance in the human uh, soul and in human thinking and so we come to this issue because it's taught so often out of this passage how do we know God's will and very simple we know what God wants us to know about his will for our lives and the decisions that we should make from his word nothing else it's his word he tells us everything we need to know and if we don't know his will then we're going to come up on a lot of difficult decisions in life and we're not going to know how to make the right decision because we don't have a framework of biblical truth in our soul. And that framework of biblical truth is what the Bible calls wisdom. And you have books like Proverbs and Job and a number of Psalms, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. These are called the wisdom books. And they're to teach this thing called biblical wisdom. And biblical wisdom isn't like the Greek wisdom. Greek wisdom, the Greek word Sophia, is the word for wisdom, and it was just an academic or intellectual knowledge that was well thought through. But that's not the, it's not this kind of abstract philosophical understanding uh, that that is what is embedded in the in the Hebrew mind. It's something very practical. Wisdom is a skill at living by making wise decisions based upon this framework of the Word of God, a framework uh, biblical teaching of of uh, Bible doctrine. So now, what I want to do, having gone through a number of different verses demonstrating different things, what I want to do tonight is look at examples of how people, biblical, major biblical figures made decisions in the Scripture. In other words, do they ever ask the question, what is God's will for my life? They never do. That's really interesting because when you listen to the way this is taught by a great number of Bible teachers and pastors, as they affirm that and validate that as a an important question. So we've talked about several things here. We've talked about misconceptions about God's will, and this is sort of the traditional view is that you need to live in the center of God's will. You may be off-center and it's pretty good. You may be off-off-center and it's good, but it's really going to be God's best if you learn to live in the center of God's will. It's just that the Bible never talks about it this way. That traditional view is the idea that God has a specific will for how and what each believer thinks. That's true. Everybody agrees on that. That is called the plan, of, the spiritual life plan of God. It's true for everyone. It is to walk by the Spirit, to confess sin, abide in Christ, uh, study the Word of God, internalize the Word of God. That is God's specific will for how we are to live our lives. Uh, Another one is the idea that God always has a specific operational will for each believer, and that's the same thing. It's talking about God's spiritual life plan of sanctification, spiritual maturity. And then we have statements that, like God always has a specific geographical will for every believer, and that's not true. When we looked at examples of Jonah. God didn't have a geographical will for Jonah other than to be in Israel in uh, in the northern kingdom as a prophet, uh, but he didn't. it didn't matter whether he was up in Galilee or down in Samaria or just what, as long as he was walking with the Lord. And that doesn't mean God never has a specific geographical will, but if you follow out the presuppositions of the traditional view, then that is true. God always has a, the right job, the right school, the right wife or husband, the right everything. And if you miss it, well, you're just never going to get that center of God's will back. And the Bible never addresses that that way. So that, these two last two are, are really false. Uh, 
So we clarified the term will of God, and there are different ways in which it is used. The first is God's sovereign will. And everybody agrees on this, that God has a sovereign will. He's the creator God of the universe, and he oversees his creation. Other words, other terms that are used as meaning the same thing, God's decretive will from the word decree. What God decrees would happen is what happens. And that includes uh, God's sovereign will. He wills what will happen. And his secret will, it's not revealed. And it's also his permissive will. He allows for sin and evil to develop and grow within his plan, but in such a way that he still oversees it, controls it, and limits it. It's amazing to me that when you read through Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, and you realize God creates all the categories, all the kinds, creates all the plants, he creates all the, the, the this is more than species, it's higher up that uh, that chain, more in the order of, I guess, genus or family. But when God creates all of them, there are boundaries. But God also oversees things and created them with enough flexibility so that when the chaos of sin went through went through all of creation like a 100-point earthquake on the Richter scale that God's categories, God's kinds, God's uh, creation could handle it, and God's plan could handle it. So that shows us that there can be flexibility to handle the chaos of sin, but it doesn't destroy the plan of God. God is able to oversee all of it because he's omniscient and we're not. And so we always sit there and think we can judge God and we don't know anything. And he knows it all. So God's this is God's sovereign will. Everyone agrees on this, whatever your theological uh, perspective. Uh, second was God's moral will, also called his revealed will or his desired will. This is what's revealed in the scriptures, the thou shalt nots and the you shall. This is uh, commands like love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus says that... Uh, the mark of a disciple, he says, from now on, everyone will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So these, all of these commands are part of God's revealed will, his moral will, the commands to Jonah to go to Nineveh, the commands for Abraham to go to Haran and then to the promised land, uh, the commands to um, to Lot and his wife to leave Sodom and not look back. And what happens? In God's permissive will, he allows Lot's wife to look back. And then God's permissive will also includes the discipline. She gets turned into a pillar of salt. So this is the God's moral will. We know Whatever, we have a sufficient revelation of God's moral will in the scriptures. We don't know God's sovereign will. It's, it's secret. We don't know what he's going to allow until after the fact. So I've given you various verses about how God directs Abram, directed Moses in Exodus 3.10, directed Joshua in Joshua 1, 2, and 3. Uh, this is all special revelation, God speaks in a vision, in a dream. He speaks with Moses mouth to mouth. All of these are direct revelation because you don't have a completed canon of Scripture yet. But what happens once the New Testament close, closes is a doctrine known as the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, you've all heard that term. Everybody hears that term. I believe in the sufficiency of grace, the efficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture. Really? And as soon as you have a problem, you go to some psychiatrist. You go, i got to have counseling. You don't go to the Word of God that is sufficient. You go to the insufficient uh, counseling of someone who is, not, his, even his wisdom isn't predicated upon the Word of God. So you either, either believe in the sufficiency of Scripture or you don't. And if you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, you do really don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. 
And this is a tough thing for a lot of people to understand because they face serious problems. They're serious for them. But why are you facing these problems? Because you're living in a fallen world with a fallen body, with a sin nature, and you've got to deal with the fact ultimately that the Word of God claims to be sufficient for you, and are you going to believe that or not? And, And that is where most Christians fail. They don't really want God's will to be sufficient. Okay, so, and then we have God's overriding will where we make decisions contrary to God's specific will, and then God overrides that, and Jonah tried to go as far west as he could, and he still ends up in Nineveh because of God's overriding overriding will. Okay, so, in contrast to this traditional will, we have the wisdom view. Three basic points summarizes the wisdom view. Number one is what I just stated. God's word is sufficient for us to make every decision in life. If you really believe that, you're going to have some hard testing. But you have to know God's word in order to be able to really understand that. And you have to know God's word at a level that goes beyond Bible stories and understanding who the characters are. That's why you need to read your Bible is so you get that basic kindergartner knowledge of the Bible. And people, Christians who don't read their Bible don't have a kindergartner understanding of the Bible. They're just spiritual babies in terms of knowing the framework of God's word. So it's important to read your Bible. You're not going to understand a lot of it. I read through section of the Bible and I say, I can't wait till the day that I can get back and really study this and figure out what it says. An omniscient, infinite God revealed it. Do you think you're a little finite, partially knowledgeable, barely educated mind can understand everything in the Bible the first time you read it, second time you read it, the thousandth time you read it? Not, a, not at all. Isn't it amazing? We're just so arrogant. I pick up the Bible, I expect to be able to understand everything in it. A lot of Christians think that. Well, I tried to read the Bible, but I didn't understand it. Well, you'll start understanding it about the tenth time through, but if you don't read it the first nine times, you'll never get to the tenth time when it'll start to make sense. Oh, well, it's just so boring. Well, that's because you're a sinner and you want it to be boring. You don't want God's Word. It takes time. It's, it, you don't have fast food scripture. You don't have fast food instant microwave meals. The ones who are out there with the mega churches that are giving microwave dinners, they are toxic and they're poisoning their congregation. The only way you can get it is it takes time. It takes years. It takes listening to the word it takes study reading and you have to make time for it so god's word is sufficient for every decision in life this alone precludes any kind of additional verbal or nonverbal revelation that is so important if you believe that the closing of the canon means that god's word is sufficient then nothing is added to it that's what that means you don't add to it. We didn't get a whole new realm of revelation when Sigmund Freud came along or with any of the other uh, psychotherapists that followed in his footsteps over the last 150 years. It, uh, what was good enough for the Apostle Paul, and I'm not talking about the King James Bible, the sufficient revelation that Paul had, that John had, that Peter had, that is just as good for them to deal with the problems that they had as it is for anybody today. They didn't miss something that was suddenly suddenly discovered, oh, in the 20th century, which means all those believers, Old Testament and New Testament church-age believers, missed out. That's what you're really saying is, oh, now that we have uh, psychology and counseling and sociology And this new science based on Darwinism, now that we have that, we can truly understand reality. No, you can't. All you're going to do is confuse yourself and get distracted. If we believe in a sufficient scripture, then that means that God doesn't need to tell us anything else to make a wise decision about the issues of life. Now, that's something to really think about. 
God is not going to give you guidance through impressions, through intuitions, through emotions, through feelings. He's given you a sufficient revelation to give you a framework to make wise decisions in difficult circumstances. The traditional view believes that the Bible provides guidance for most decisions in life, but in many individual decisions, God's additional revelation is necessary. He's got to give me a little liver quiver. He's got to give me some kind of vibration. He's got to give me a little dream, a little hint of this or a little hint of that. It's not enough to know the scriptures. And so basically the traditional view rejects the idea uh, that the Bible is sufficient for everything in life. And the third point is that all of the examples of an individual will found in scripture involve direct revelation. So when it comes to understanding the will of God, God's sovereign will is something everybody agrees on. God's moral will is something everybody agrees on. But this idea that God has an individual will for every decision is not agreed upon. And I don't think it's biblical. It will wipe out your Christian life. It will turn you into subjectivity. So that kind of summarizes what we've done the last several weeks. And so we came to the last point, I think I hit this last time, that often decisions in life are not related as much to the final decision, that you make a decision to live in Austin instead of Houston, or you decide to move to some other state and go to New York or to Florida or to Georgia or wherever. It's not about... That the end result of that decision, it's about how you got there and why you chose it. Are you choosing it to glorify God, and are you including within your decision-making process the impact it's going to have on your spiritual life? So those are part of it. And if God has a specific geographical will for you or something else, then he won't let you go there. Or he may let you go there for a little while and say, okay, you've had enough time doing that. We're going to shut that door, and you're going to get back to where I want you, which I've experienced numerous times in life. So let's look at some examples. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. I don't know about you, but I think this whole episode with Balaam is is one of the more interesting. I have studied this, at, and I still don't know that I have most of my questions answered, and I've taught on this a few times. This is an episode that occurs as Israel has made the exodus from, from Egypt. They have gone to the, took a year, well, they didn't take them a year, took them about six weeks or two months to get to, the, uh, uh, to, get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law on Mount Sinai, and then they have to spend the rest of the year basically making all of the furniture and everything needed for the tabernacle before they can head out. And they will celebrate the second Passover there, and then they will head out into uh, the desert. And they will be headed to the Promised Land, and when they get to Kadesh Barnea, they will have a magnificent failure. And the result of that is that God is going to bring discipline on that nation for the next 40 years until all the adults in that in that generation die. And then you have their children, and now the test is going to be for their children as they go into the promised land. And the te- part of the test is that as they are going up the, the east side of the uh, of this Dead Sea, they're going through what is today Jordan, but back then it was Edom and Moab, uh, they will encounter opposition. And that's where they are. They are going to camp opposite the Jericho, across the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, in what is called the Plains of Moab. And this comes before, before Moses dies. So they are, they're there, and they're going to face operation, uh, opposition rather, from uh, uh, Balak, the son of Zippor, who were, is identified as the king of Moab uh, at that time in verse 4. And so he decides it's not enough for him to handle it because they are so numerous. I thought, I read through this again today, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. Uh, 
because you have your liberals who come along and they just can't believe that uh, the Israelites would be uh, as numerous as the Bible says. Because the Bible says they had about 650, 675,000, something like that. I'm just uh, rounding it off. I don't remember the exact number. But if you add up at the beginning of Numbers, all of the adult men at the when they, they came out of Egypt, and then you see all the adult men of fighting age that they have at the end of Numbers, you get an idea. And if for every man of fighting age between, let's say, 20 and 70, or excuse me, fighting age would be up to about 20 and 50, 40 or 50, then you add those who are older, you had those who are younger, you have children, you have wives, you have those who aren't married. So if you, for every man in that age bracket, you have three or four people. If you have four people, you've got, that would be a total of five, um, you've got three, three million people. Five times six is around three million. That's a lot of people. But the liberal says, oh, no, 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 they can't be like that. There's probably not even twenty-five or 30,000 of them. Well, then you can't make sense of what's going on here in, in with, with um, Balak because he says, these people are too mighty for me. Well, not if they're just a small number. He says, they're too mighty for me, and I am not able to defeat them. Uh, and he says at the end of verse 5, he says, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they're living opposite me. If they're covering the surface of the land, then if they're, not, if they're only 25,000 people, they're not covering the surface of the land, and you've got a real problem with courage. So the only way this makes sense is if you really do have 2.5 to 3.5 million people there that would cover the face of the earth. And so what he wants to do is he wants to go to the juju black magic route, paganism route, because that's all I know. And he knows there's this prophet who's really a false prophet named Balaam over in the area of, of uh, Babel in the Fertile Crescent. And so he's going to send his uh, team of elders over there with enough money to bribe Balaam to come and to curse Israel. That's what he says in verse 6. Now, therefore, please come. This is what he, he's instructing his uh, elders to, to do, to in, how he's instructing his elders to invite uh, Balaam to come. He says, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Now, pay attention to that word, curse. So when the men come and they start to invite Balaam, verse 9, then God came to Balaam. Notice it's, in your Bible, it's uppercase G, lowercase O-N-D, which means it's translating Elohim, not Yahweh. Pay close. Yahweh is always focused on the covenant with Israel, God's covenant with Israel. So Elohim comes to Balaam and says, Who are these men with you? And Balaam says to Elohim, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. And so he repeats what the invitation is to curse Israel. And then pay attention to verse 12. Okay, this is the revealed will of God, our, our first category. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people. Now, what's interesting is in, um, in the Bible, there's a couple of different ways when it says you shall not curse the people. There are two different ways to have a negative command or prohibition. One of them would be, uh, let's say that we are shining, cleaning and shining the, the floor in the fellowship hall. And nobody's supposed to walk there. And you say, don't walk in the fellowship hall. Well, you would use one form, which uses the Hebrew word all. It would be A-L um, if we transliterated it. And that would have the idea that don't do that now. But you can do it later on. But if you're going to give a universal prohibition, that, like thou shalt not murder 
Thou shalt not covet uh, your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not have false witness. Then you would use a different construction in Hebrew. You would start with the normative word for no, which is lo, L-O. That's one way we would memorize vocabulary. Lo means no. And in modern Hebrew, you hear that all the time. You ask somebody a question, they'll say lo. Um, that means no. And when he says, when it's low plus the imperfect form of the verb, it means it's never right. It's a universal prohibition. Thou shalt not ever do this. You shall not ever curse the people, for they are blessed. So that's God's revealed will to Balaam. So uh, Balaam arose in the morning and said to leaders, go back, go on home. And the leaders said, go back and they said Balaam refused to come with us so Balak sent more leaders with more numerous and more money uh, more affluent and uh, they start begging him and Balaam really wants to do this and now when we see um, verse 20 we see God's permissive will okay so there's there's what I showed, said a minute ago numbers 22 12 now we come to the permissive will, Numbers 22, 20. So God came to Balaam at night and said to him, see, first of all, God said, don't even go with him. You can't curse him. Now, now God's going to permit him to go. Now, it's really interesting to watch this. So God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. God says, okay, you really want to do this? I'm going to give you permission to do this. But notice the next verse. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders to Moab. And then verse 22, but God was angry because he was going. God gave him permission to go, but God, that was it violated God's revealed will, but he allowed him to disobey God but there's going to be consequences that aren't very good. So God was angry because he was going, and now look, the angel of Yahweh, see, you have capital L and then lowercase uh, lower capitals O-R-D, that's for the tetragrammaton, that's for Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people would like this to be true for them, that the angel of the Lord is taking a stand against you, but it's not a pleasant thing. So this is God's permissive will, though. And there are three things that happen, and it all involves the donkey. God uses the donkey to give more direction to Gideon. So according to the traditional view, one might ask, well, do I have to have a donkey in my backyard in order to get God's well for my life I'm just pointing out the absurdity of it so in each case the donkey is allowed to see the angel of Yahweh but uh, um, Balaam does not and so the angel of the Lord in verse 24 stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on the other and when the when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. That felt good. So he struck her again. Okay, so the first time he gets pressed, I skipped 23. He turned off the way, went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back. Then there's the second incident. and the third incident, the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry, kept hitting the donkey. This is a case of the donkey making an ass of the man. Verse 28, And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam is so angry. Have you ever noticed when you really, really get angry, you're so irrational that when something really weird happens, you don't even pay attention to it because you're just so consumed with anger? That's, that's Balaam at this time. His donkey starts talking to him. He doesn't even stop and say, what? What's going on? You're talking. 
he just he answers as if this is no strange thing. And he said, because you've made a, uh, Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. He's really angry. And so there's this conversation that goes on there, and then uh, the angel of the Lord directly confronts Balaam, and Balaam then in verse 34 says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. So he recognizes he a sinner. There's a big question. Is Balaam saved or not? I think Balaam is saved. He's a Gentile that's saved, but he's a Gentile that's, that's in rebellion against God. And then we have revealed will of God in verse, in verse 35. But the angel of the, uh, of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I shall tell you. So it's revealed will, but it's also permissive will. Still permissive will, but he's going to... Uh, back a, uh, back uh, back it up with uh, overriding will in Numbers twenty three fifteen and twenty six, and in each of these instances, uh, what is happening is that the Lord has allowed him to disobey him and go there, and and then instead of cursing uh, the Israelites, the Lord's going to put a word in Balaam's mouth, so he's overriding him. And that happens in verse 5 and verse 15, uh, because in verse 15, we read, Balaam said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering. Well, I go to have a discussion with the Lord over there. And what happens is God's going to tell him what he can and can't say. And then in verse 26, so Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you, saying all that the Lord speaks, that I must do? So he he's he gets to do what he wants to do and go there, but in the end, God overrides what he wants to do, and he has to give the message from God. So that's God's overruling, overriding will. So what that tells us is even if you make the wrong decision related to God's geographic will or operational will with his, uh, God will override uh, that and resolve the problem. Okay, let's look at some New Testament passages. Most of the passages that people use for the will of God in the traditional way are words that are, are things that are taken out of context in the sense that they usually come out of Old Testament passages where God is telling a prophet what to do or what not to do or telling some individual what to do or what not to do, or telling them where to go or where not to go. But that's special revelation. So there's this categorical confusion there that doesn't apply to any of us, and God only has that kind of special revelatory direction for less than 50 people in the whole, all of Scripture, unless you're talking about some major thing that he's directing the Israelites to do in the Old Testament. So so these verses that are usually used to support this view are, are not really the same as what we have in the church age. Okay, so we're going to turn to Acts chapter 15. This is a great chapter known as the chapter of the Jerusalem Council. The background to this is that in Acts chapter 10, God revealed to Peter that he was supposed to accept what God was now making clean as clean, and he was supposed to go with these Gentile messengers back to the home of Cornelius in Caesarea by the sea. Now, up to this time, no self-respecting Jew would go eat in the home of a Gentile. But God has directed him through this vision as he lowers this big tablecloth with all of this wonderful treif food. The treif is the uh, Jewish word for the opposite of kosher. So treif means lobster, catfish, all of these wonderful things that we like to eat, shrimp, crab meat. Can't eat any of that. Uh, bacon. So interesting to me how many how many Jews that have been somewhat observant, first thing they do after they get saved is they go have a bacon sandwich or a ham and cheese, something like that. 
And it's interesting, if you go to Israel, you go in the Jaffa Gate, and you go down just as the road makes a turn, there's a restaurant on the left, and they say that they have ham and cheese sandwiches signed in the window because you're in the Christian quarter. Little things. Okay, so what happens now is that that Peter has gone to the Gentiles, and they have trusted in Christ. The Holy Spirit has come upon them in the same way, Peter says, as he came when on, on the day of Pentecost. So they're being included in the church. And so this is causing the Jews to, to what's going on here? Before we were God's people, now Gentiles are included. How do we handle this? And so they have a decision to make. And in the meantime, Paul has gone to Galatia, and they've had problems there because uh, Judaizers came along behind uh, Paul and saying, and Paul and Barnabas saying that um, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the law. And so there, there's this, there's this discussion about how are we going to handle that. Now you might think that in a key doctrinal theological issue like this that they would get on their hands and knees and pray, God, please tell us how to handle this. They don't do that. So what happens is they they get together. And so we talk about the Judaizers who come down from Judea and began teaching the brethren that, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And so now they're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to bring in the other other disciples. And you've got some in verse 5. Some of these believers are like Paul. They're from the sect of the Pharisees. And they were holding to the view that it's necessary to, be, to all be circumcised and that they needed to observe the law. The law. Of Moses. So in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into the matter. And after much debate, notice it doesn't say after they got on their hands and knees and fasted and prayed, God spoke to them. They had much debate, and they are, Peter stands up and tells what happened with Cornelius, and then James stands up and addresses them in verse 13. He says, Brethren, listen to me, Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And he goes through and quotes various passages from the Old Testament showing that God's plan was always to include the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. And then... uh, and, in, and then he says in verse 19, which I have on the screen, he says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Notice he didn't say God showed it to me, God told me, God revealed to me. He said, after looking at the scripture, my conclusion is that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is a wisdom decision. This is not a thou shalt not or thou shalt decision. He draws the conclusion from how God has operated with Peter and what God revealed in the Old Testament. That becomes its its basis. So that's in verse 19. Then I'm just going to hit the high points in the following verses down to 29. You have, or actually down to, to yeah, down to 29, Actually, 34, we have the same phrase. But we have these different different responses. In 1522, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. See, it doesn't say God revealed to them that they should do this. They looked at all of the data, and they looked at these key people, and they decided that they would choose Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas and that they would send them with the conclusion they came to at the council. And then in verse 25, we read that in the letter that they send, they didn't say, now God told us this. It, that's the trump card. God said, God spoke, this is Scripture. 
They didn't say that. It said They said what? It seemed good to us, having become of one mind. How did they become of one mind? They had a lengthy discussion about what the Scripture taught, and they had to work their way through what the Scripture taught to see how it would apply to the situation of these Gentiles coming into the church. It wasn't a quick and easy decision. They had to, to, they talked about, they discussed what the scripture said, what God had done through Peter, and they came to this conclusion and they say, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind. So they worked it through till they had agreement. Having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then verse 28, now we hear the Holy Spirit mentioned. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Now, if you skip down after they deliver the letter to Antioch, and we go down to verse uh, about verse 33, after they'd spent some time there, that is, let me go to 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, New Testament prophets, encourage and strengthen the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good. See, there's that phrase again. There's no divine revelation. There's no liver quiver. There's not based on feeling. It seemed good to Silas to remain there. So the other guys go on this mission, and Silas says, I'm going to stay back here and minister to the brethren. And Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others, also the word of God. And in Acts 15.36, after they have been there for a while... Then Paul says to Barnabas, God spoke to me last night in a vision and said that we need to go back and double-check on all these churches we planted. Is that what it says? No. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren. It seems like a good idea to go back and check on them. Let's go do that. And Barnabas says, that's great. And he wanted to take Mark along with them. And now this is this is uh, very interesting because Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along because Mark failed on the first trip. He got tired. His feet were sore. He just couldn't hang in there. So Paul said, well, send him home. And now Paul's not going to put up with him anymore. But eventually they reconcile, and he actually asked for Mark to come to him when he's in Rome. And Mark grew up. So this is what what happens here. And Paul kept insisting. See, you don't see them stopping and asking, well, what does God want me to do here? They have this reservoir of doctrine. They have this framework of doctrine in their soul from spiritual maturity so that they can make a wise decision. Now, the text doesn't say that they prayed, but I'm pretty sure they prayed. But they're praying that God would just help them to think through the issue biblically and make a wise decision. Later on, we turn to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul at the end of his third missionary journey, and he's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem before Passover, and so he decided. It doesn't say, well, he wanted to know what God's individual will for his life was at this point. He decided to sail past Ephesus in order to uh, save time so that he could get back to Jerusalem. So all of these different passages show that, that there are that there's this category of special revelation when God wants something specific and otherwise he doesn't. God's not trying to hide his will from us. There are ways that God will will encourage us and strengthen us in a decision so that what we do is going to be a result of our study of his word, and we're going to come to a conclusion that it seems good to us that this is what glorifies God. And so I am going to make this decision. And God may sit up in heaven and go, well, that wasn't a very good decision. 
your, your, your process was better than it's been in the past, but it still isn't very good, so I'm not going to let you carry that out. Other times you're going to make a decision and say, well, I'm not going to do this, and God's just going to, through various means, make you absolutely uncomfortable and miserable until you do what, go where he wants you to go, or he's going to close doors and opportunities won't, won't present themselves. Now let's look at another passage in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verses 10 through 13. Paul is talking about to the Romans, saying, I've been wanting to come to Rome for a long time. So he wants to go there, but it isn't God's sovereign will for him to go there yet. It's not God's permissive will for him to go there yet. So he says, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Notice his will is expressed there. I long to see you. And then verse 13, he says, And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and I have been prevented thus far. I could have said that about going to Israel. I started trying to go to Israel in the uh, probably the early 90s. And I wanted to go to Israel, and, and finally it just it, it's like it all came together and God allowed it to happen. But it, I planned it. I was supposed to be on a trip with Randy Price in September of, I think it was 90 or 91, whenever the first Gulf War happened. And so Iran attacks Kuwait in July, and there went the trip in September. And over the next three or four years, I tried to go on a trip with Randy several times, and, you know, there were just these problems with the first intifada and second intifada anyway. So that's what happens. We plan things. But that's not God's permissive will. He's not going to allow that to happen, so it, it, it doesn't, doesn't happen. And look at how Paul speaks at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. He says, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will come with me. If it is fitting, basically he's saying if God allows it, but he doesn't put it in those terms. If it's fitting. So he's making a decision based on this is a good thing to do, to go to a place and live there and be part of this church, but that never happens because that's not God's permissive will. But you desire to do a good thing. Verse 5, but I shall come to you after I go through, he's writing to the Corinthians, I'll, I'll go through Macedonia and if, um, and perhaps I shall stay with you. Perhaps. God may not allow it, but perhaps. I shall stay with you. Verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. God's permissive will. So see, there, it, this fits the so-called wisdom view here. And then to wrap up, I just want to blitz through some passages here. In every instance of a specific will of God, it is known only through special revelation. So that means we need to pay attention to what God has revealed. Today, God does not speak to us through visions or direct communication of the Holy Spirit or the audible voice of God or the direction of a prophet. He speaks to us through his word. What does God tell you is his will? Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord." So there we have five verses that tell us exactly what God's will is. But that's not what the answer people want when they say, well, I've got a decision to make, and I need to know whether I should work for this company or that country, move to this state or that state. Well, 
as long as you can do these things well, it may not matter in God's plan whether you go to point A or you go in the opposite direction to point C. But if it is going to matter, then no matter how much you want to pursue going to point C, God's not going to allow it, and you will end up at point A. But he's not going to reveal that to you because that's not how God operates in this dispensation. We can go further in Ephesians 5 where he says, See then that you walk, that is, live your life circumspectly, not as fools, not as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. See, whether you live in this location, that location, marry this person or that person, have no children or some children, whether you retire at 50 or retire at 80, you can do all of these things because this is the will of God. If you want to go different places, God's the one who is involved in that. You trust the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and he makes your path straight. So we are then directed in verse 17, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then what does he say? Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. That's God's will for your life. That's not how we normally want to address it. Then we look at passages like Galatians 5.16. I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust in the flesh. Or Philippi, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16-22. to 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Right there in the middle it says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto all, may be known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, right there you have to stop watching the news. I'm just kidding. You have to stop reading the newspaper. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe you do. Um, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That excludes a lot. Well, I want to know what God's will for my life is. Well, do these things. The rest of it's going to work itself out. We don't like that. Philippians 4, 9, these things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do, and the God of peace will be with you. So we get wrapped up in this question of what does God want me to do only because we are a self-indulgent, self-absorbed, self-focused generation, that it's all about me. And because we say, well, I want to know what God wants me to do, we think we've camouflaged it with God talk. But what God wants us to do is to love him with all our heart, soul, body, mind, and strength and to do what he says to do in the scripture and to walk with him, walk humbly with your Lord. So that wraps up this little sub-series on how do we know the will of God and we'll come back next time and see how uh, Gideon is used by God to defeat the Midianites. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on these things tonight. Help us to think about how we are to think, how we are to live, uh, how we are to conduct our lives in this world related to the wor- your word. And as a result of that, it becomes clear as you guide and direct us and you will always provide for us. And especially in this time of chaos, time of economic instability, times of the threats of war, 
Uh, Father, we recognize that our job is just to relax, do what you say to do in the Scripture, focus on our spiritual life, live out our responsibilities for you with integrity, and the result is that you will take care of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.